morning. I think some, some people still sleep. Let me say it again. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Good morning. Well, I tell you, it is a privilege and a pleasure to be here once again, being able to present the Word of God here. And uh, I'm just praying that God uses me because I don't take being able to speak His Word lightly. And I want to make sure that everybody understands that when God's Word is spoken, that it's not about the the person that's presenting it, it's about God himself. Amen. And uh, I want to introduce my daughters here. Uh, when when, she, when uh, she was a little toddler uh, and I was preaching, she was like, Dad, you didn't say hi to me. Said, hi, Brittany. <laughs> and this is her husband, uh, Jay. You know my, my wife, Teresa, my mother, Roberta. So glad that they're able to make it here today. Okay, so t- today we're going to uh, continue along the, uh, in the book of John, and as you know that Pastor Elisha has been preaching a sermon series on the book of John, so today I'm going to continue along that path. So far we've navigated through chapter 1 um, to the critical moments of chapter 3. It's been a, a spiritually enriching passage, revealing the depth and majesty of Jesus Christ's early ministry. Now, in the opening chapter, John the Baptist presents us with an introduction to Jesus, not merely as a historical figure, but as an incarnate word. This portrayal sets the foundation for understanding Jesus' nature and his intimate relationship with God the Father. Now, the narrative further unfolds with John the Baptist's impressive testimony pointing unequivocally to Jesus as the anticipated Lamb of God. This moment is pivotal pivotal because it underscores the transition from prophetic anticipation to the manifestation of redemption in Jesus. Let me start my timer. Sorry about that. As we continue into to the second chapter, we witness the transformative power of Jesus' first miracle at Cana, symbolizing the new covenant joy and abundance. His subsequent act of cleansing the temple reveals his zeal for purity and reverence and worship, challenging us to examine our own practices and commitments. Chapter 3 brought us to a nighttime dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. I like to call that Nick at night. Some of you guys get that. (laughs) So this is where, uh, this is where Jesus articulates the necessity of spiritual rebirth. This conversation culminating in the declaration of God's universal love in John 3.16. We all know that verse, right? And almost the whole world knows it. It was displayed at football games back in earlier years. So this uh, invites us to embrace a personal and transformative faith in Christ, leading all the way up to where we are today, these 15 verses, John 3, 22 to 36. These narratives collectively underscores Jesus' emerging ministry and the gradual decrease of John the Baptist's role, symbolizing the fulfillment of the law and prophets in Christ. This transition 
is not merely a shift in focus, but a profound deepening of the revelation of God's redemptive plan. So won't you read with me John 3, 22 to 36. I'll be reading from the NIV version. It's going to be up to the screen. You may have your Bibles or your phone, whatever, but you can, you can follow along. We're going to see some translations going to be a little different. So verse 22 says, After this, John and his disciples went into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Verse 24, this was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He must be greater and I must become less. He must increase, I must decrease. Another way of saying it. The one who comes, verse 31, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from, from the earth belongs to the earth and, is, and speaks uh, one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts this testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit or without measure. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on, on them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you right now, Lord. We just asking you to illuminate your word, that you will allow us to see this passage of Scripture as you intended to be seen. Father, we pray that as we listen and we hear that, we will understand your word and we'll be able to give it application in our lives. We thank you for this time. For it's in your blessed son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was thinking about this man. Some of you guys may know him. Some of you may go over your head. There's this gentleman by the name of Joe Namath. Joe Namath was a quarterback. He was a good quarterback. Played for the New York Jets. Now, Joe, he had other nicknames. Joe Willie, Broadway Joe. And, he, and, you know, he was on TVs, he was on commercials. But one day he was in this restaurant with his friends, and they were having, having a lunch, having dinner or something, and they were sitting there. And so Joe Namath, he saw this little boy running towards him, so he grabbed the menu and started to give an autograph. And so the little boy came over there, he began to hand the autograph to the little boy. The little boy was kind of like, what is he doing? Excuse me, sir, uh, no thank you. I just want to see if I can borrow the ketchup. <laughs> so basically, this story 
in the restaurant teaches us a valuable lesson about humility. See, Joe Namath, a celebrated sports figure, assumed that the young boy approaching him wanted an autograph due to his fame and success. However, the boy's simple request for ketchup instead of an autograph serves as a reminder that not everyone will be aware or impressed of your status or your achievements. They don't know you. This incident highlights the importance of humility, reminding us that fame and accomplishments don't necessarily make, make one the center of intention in every situation. That's a bitter pill to swallow. It's a lesson in recognizing that our personal achievements or status don't always hold the same value or significance to others as it do to us. Additionally, it underscores the importance of not making assumptions about others' perceptions or needs based on our own importance. Placing others before yourself involves understanding and accepting our place in the broader context of the world, recognizing that while we may be, in, be important in some circles, we're just ordinary individuals in other circles. It teaches us to approach situations and people without preconceived notions influenced by our ego or our status, allowing for more genuine and meaningful interactions. Joe Namath thought more highly of himself than he ought of. We are going to see in the message today, as we unpack it a little, that that was not the case with John the Baptist. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to kind of go through these 15 scriptures because it, there's a lot there. I mean, there's so much time that we can actually spend just on these 15 chapters because it's so rich, so much information. So what I want to do is I want to just unpack these 15 scriptures a little bit, and then I'm going to get to the sermon title. So look at, look, we're going to go to John 3.22. We're told that after an important conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples, uh, they left Jerusalem and, and headed to the Judean countryside. Now this moved Jesus from the urban, busy city and religious heart of Jerusalem to a more in quiet and rural areas as a shift in Jesus' ministry. Taking his teachings from the city's religious elite to the broader population, which he was basically kind of showing when he's talking about, go ye therefore. Now, while in the countryside, this is very interesting, Jesus' disciples were doing the baptizing. We understand that the, the Bible, this particular text says that Jesus was baptizing. It was actually his disciples baptizing. It, it, but it marks a distinction from John's baptism. Though both baptisms involve water, Jesus' baptism is associated with a deeper spiritual transformation, the precursor of the Holy Spirit baptism and that Jesus later introduced. It's interesting to note that Jesus himself, as I said before, he's not the one that's actually doing the baptism. We're going to see that in, in John 4. That it really uh, goes into that a little bit deeper. His disciples are the ones that are doing the baptizing. The reason why I say that is because Jesus is, is more of a role of a teacher, more of a role of preaching than baptizing at this particular stage. John 3.23, John the Baptist is at Anon near Salim, not too far from where Jesus is. So I tried to see how far the, the distance was, but I could not, so it wasn't really that important. 
because they didn't want us to know. If they wanted us to know, it would have been there. The name Anon means spring or natural fountain, and Salim is not, I mean, it's thought to mean peace. And so the name, the name, um, the names, we don't want to get to the point where we over-spiritualize things. Sometimes when you get into church, you kind of over-spiritualize things. But look, look what, the, what it says here. The location is practical because why? There's plenty of water there. Now, many of you guys may have heard, anybody heard of Willie Sutton? Willie Sutton is an infamous bank robber. They asked him, so Willie, why did you rob banks? He said, well, that's where the money was. It was simple. So, so why did John the Baptist go to Anon near Salim? Because that's where the water was. But also it kind of shows us that when it comes to um, baptism, that, um, that they needed more water, that this was more than just a sprinkling, that it was something that, that was more related to immersion. And so, and so we're going to see further down as we get into another passage that there became a, a dispute about, about ceremonial cleaning, cleansing. The setting underscores the physical and symbolic importance of water and baptism representing cleansing and renewal. Now, John 3, 3.24 adds a crucial detail, mentioning that John's imprisonment hadn't happened yet. This chronological note helps us to understand the timing of these events and the overlap between Jesus and John's ministries. This little scripture is just here to tell us when this event happened in a time stamp, to speak, so to speak. So we just, it just... The Bible just kind of gives you a little clues as to what's going on and when it's happening. So in verse 25, there's a dispute about purification. Now, this, this right here just kind of blows me away. And we, we see this even, even today. So between John's disciples and, and, a, and a Jew, it didn't say the Jews, it just says a Jew. This likely revolves around the differences between traditional Jewish ceremonial washings, which were about ritual cleanliness and baptism, which symbolized repentance and spiritual renewal. This distinction is important because it highlights the transformative nature of, of John's and Jesus' baptism compared to tr traditional rites. Bottom line, this was petty. They, they, were, they were missing the main thing. They were arguing over something insignificant. It was kind of a comparison of sorts. Today, churches and religions they even have comparisons about the different things that they do. We don't do that at our church. They do this at this church. It's petty. Jesus at once asked a question that is recorded in three of the synoptic gospels. Who do they say that I am? Sometimes you just have to keep the main thing the main thing. Who do you say that Jesus is? John 3.26 shows John's disciples concerned about Jesus' growing popularity they called John rabbi a term of respect. But their worry about Jesus' ministry overshadowing John's reveals their limited understanding of John's role as the forerunner to the Messiah. John's rabbi uh, concerns, concerned that they were losing members. His disciples were concerned about the diminishing, uh, that their congregation was diminishing. They didn't get the memo or they missed the message of the memo. It wasn't about John the baptizer. See, that's, see, see let, me say, let me just go ahead and say this real quick. John the Baptist wasn't his name. It kind of described what he does. He baptized. Back then, they called, they called him John the baptizer, just like you would call Cedric the entertainer or Chance the rapper. <laughs> 
So it, it just described what he did, not, you know, who he was. So verse 27 and 28 captures John's humility perfectly. He knows that he, is, he was sent ahead of Christ and not to be the main act to prepare the way. You know, it's like, just think about this. You go to the best hospital in town, right, and they have this good nurse, and you're going to have surgery. The nurse takes care of you really good. She does a great job. She gets you all prepped and ready to go. And then the doctor walks in, no, no, doc, I want, I want the nurse to, to handle the surgery. Would you do that? No. That's the same comparison here. See, that's what John was trying to get them to see. No, 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 no. I, I, was, just, I was just getting things ready. His response is a perfect lesson in humility and understanding one's role in God's plan. In verse 29, John uses the analogy of the bridegroom and his friend to describe his joy in seeing Jesus' ministry flourish. He knows his role is to support, not to be the center of, 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 of attention. And then John 3.30 is, is crucial. John acknowledges that his role must diminish as Jesus' ministry grows. This isn't about loss. It's about fulfillment. John is content knowing that he's done what he was meant to do. John was that fullback that opened up the hole so the tailback can go through it. I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm a former football player, so sometimes I got to understand things in football. So now finally in, in verses 31 to 36, John contrasts the, early, the earthly and heavenly origins of Jesus and others he underscores Jesus' authority and importance of believing in him for eternal life. John's message here is clear. He's not the focus. Jesus is. We're not the focus. Jesus is. He's setting the stage for Jesus' ministry to take precedence, reminding his followers and us that the heart of the message is Jesus, the giver of eternal life. So now through these verses, we see many themes, the transition of ministry from John to Jesus, the significance of baptism, the importance of understanding one's role in God's plan, and the ultimate focus on Jesus as the Messiah. John exemplifies humility, knowing that his purpose was to point to Jesus, the one who must increase as he himself decreased. The question that we must try to answer together today this morning is, how do I make it not about me? How do I decrease? How do I point others to Jesus? I'm glad you asked that question. We're going to talk about it now. In today's sermon, it's, about, it's, it's not about you. You must decree, de decrease. We will learn to do exactly that, point others to Jesus. We will look into the life and teachings of John the Baptist, a critical figure in Christian faith, John's life and, and ministry as depicted in the scriptures offer profound insights into how we as believers should navigate our own lives, handle various situations, and understand our roles in, in God's grand design by examining key biblical passages and drawing parallels with John's approach. We can uncover valuable lessons on practicing what we preach, maintaining a clear perspective of who Jesus is and understanding our purpose as believers. 
Matthew 3, 3 says, For this is who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Acts 19, 4 says, Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. In your blank, on your bulletin, follow along notes, you can put practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. You see, John the Baptist was practicing what he preached. He, he showed humility in leadership. A lot of times people, when they become leader, I'm the boss. Follow me, follow what I do. Do what I say. But, that's, but, but John was showing humility. John the Baptist demonstrated humility by acknowledging that his role was to prepare the way for someone greater than himself, and that was Jesus. Despite having a significant following, John consistently pointed his disciples to Jesus, exemplifying humility. It wasn't about me. He said, it's not about me. He had the true servant leadership. He must become greater. I must become less. He showed baptism and he did baptism of repentance. You see, John's primary message was one of repentance in preparation for the coming Messiah. By baptizing, he wasn't merely performing a ritual, but was calling people to genuine change of heart and life. A principle he lived by in his self-denying lifestyle and dedication to God's calling. So in essence, John the Baptist has not only uh, preached profound spiritual truths, but also lived them out daily in his ministry. His ministry was characterized by humility, service, and a focus on the heart's transformation. Serves as a foundational example uh, for living out the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations, teaching and baptizing in the name of the Holy Trinity. In summary, John the Baptist's life was a testament to his preaching. He lived a life of repentance, humility, and unwavering commitment to God's will, setting an example for all believers to follow. Now, as we reflect on the example set by John the Baptist in practicing what he preached, let's consider how this principle applies to our own lives. Just like John, we are called to line our actions with our words, ensuring that our daily lives reflect the values and beliefs we profess. Preaching in the context of our lives isn't just about spoken words from a pulpit. Practice what you preach is about the message we send through our actions, through our choices and interactions with others. Every act of kindness, every decision you choose, integrity over, over convenience, and every moment of patience and love are always are ways that we preach to people around us. They're watching us. They're watching our actions. So how should we preach what we, how should we practice what we preach? Good question. It's about making our actions consistent with our beliefs. For instance, if we, if we talk about the importance of generosity, let's be the first to share what we have 
even if it's as simple as offering that last slice of your favorite pizza when your wife comes in and asks if she can have it, <laughs> practice it. Or if we advocate for patience, let's take a deep breath and count to 10 when you go out here on Mira Mesa Boulevard. Even when that car in front of you seems like they have fallen in love with their phone at the green light. <laughs> in essence, practicing what you preach is about living authentically, where our actions and words work together, right? It's about being the same person in the dark as we are in the light. And remember, while we strive to live up to these ideals, it's okay to be a work in progress. I know that I'm a work in progress, and if you don't believe me, ask my wife. She'll straighten you out. So let's try to smile more, have a heart full of good intentions, and a commitment to practice what we preach. One, more, one small thing, genuine, it's time to be genuine. Let's be genuine about it. 2 Corinthians 11 and 2 says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to, to Christ. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. So in 2, we're looking at maintain a clear perspective of who Jesus is. See, John's disciples didn't have a clear perspective as to who Jesus was. We need to have a clear perspective as to who Jesus is in our life every single day, every single moment, every single conversation that we have with people because we may be the only glimpse of Jesus that a person has the opportunity to see. When Jesus' disciples began their baptismal, baptismal ministry, John the Baptist's followers were engulfed in a storm of jealousy and dispute. They saw the crowds gravitating towards Jesus, feeling their own ministry was, was being eclipsed. This situation is, is a, was a reflection of our own lives, where comparison and envy can take root. We may not want to admit it right here in church, but sometimes we envy other people. You know, we, we, how can they get that? How come I can't get that? How come they get that promotion? How come I didn't get that promotion? Now, whether in ministries or careers or in pursuit of material, I, I didn't look up because I didn't want nobody to give it their secret away. So whether in our ministries, careers, or in pursuit of material wealth, these feelings can be destructive, diverting us from focus on Christ. You see, John's response to the situation was one of divine wisdom. He directed his disciples' attention from himself to Jesus, emphasized that his role was always intended to be secondary to Christ. John clarified that he was not the Messiah, but merely the forerunner, sent ahead of him, the fullback. His role was to prepare, but not to be the centerpiece. John used that, the powerful metaphor of Jesus as a bridegroom and himself as the best man. His joy, he explained, was in witnessing Jesus marry his bride, the, the church. In his metaphor, John's role diminishes with the arrival of Jesus, uh, with the arrival of Jesus, symbolizing the transition from John's preparatory work to the fulfillment found in Christ. Now, John's profound de declaration, he must increase, but I must decrease, 
encloses our Christian calling. It is our duty to elevate Jesus in our lives. It's our duty, it's our responsibility to elevate Jesus in our lives, allowing others to receive so that he may come to the forefront. Now, John's clear understanding of his role in, in relation to Jesus was not just a personal epiphany, but a fulfillment of God's purpose for his life. Now, as we dig a little deeper into the uh, subsequent verses, we recognize the importance of his understanding of each of us. Now, for us to maintain a clear perspective of Jesus, for who Jesus is, it requires a conscious effort to shift our focus from ourselves and our achievements to Christ and his glory. It means finding joy not in our own success, our recognition, but in witnessing the growth of God's kingdom. We're about kingdom building. It, it involves embracing humility, recognizing that our talents and opportunities are gifts meant to serve God's greater plan. In our daily lives, this might look like celebrating others' success without envy, serving in our communities without seeking acknowledgement, and prioritizing our spiritual growth over worldly gains. By doing so, we not only honor the example set by John the Baptist, but we also draw closer to fulfilling our God-given purpose with Jesus at the center of our lives. Then Matthew 5, 6, 16 says, Let our light shine before men that we may see, that uh, they may see your good works and what? Glorify you? Is that what it says? Okay. I'm just trying to, I, just want to see, I just want to make sure you guys didn't fall asleep. Okay. They may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Philippians 2.15, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom shine uh, as lights in the world. Three, know our purpose as believers. Know our purpose as believers. Have you ever asked yourself, what is my purpose? What, what is my purpose? If you haven't, do so. What is my purpose? What, what should I be doing? What, what is God calling me to do? Let me put this in perspective for you. When Jesus stepped into his ministry and started baptizing, the disciples of John began to feel some kind of way. They felt a little uneasy. They saw the crowds drifting towards Jesus and thought, wasn't it John that laid all the groundwork and started all this? This shift led to feelings of being overshadowed, which stirred up jealousy and envy. John saw things differently because he was grounded. He addressed the disciples with clarity and calm, saying, This mission is bigger than me. My purpose was to prepare the way for Jesus. So he, re he reinforced this to them. Remember, I've always said that I'm not the Messiah. My role was to introduce him. John knew his purpose. He didn't try to go beyond his purpose. John likened his position to that of, that of a best man at a wedding, supporting the bridegroom who is just, uh, Jesus in this case, the best man's role, John explained, is not to be the center of attention, but to support the groom. My joy is in seeing Jesus step into his role. John accepted as Jesus' presence grew, his own must diminish. He must increase 
but I must decrease. So, you know, we've gone camping a lot, and so I kind of draw a parallel to this. You know, going out into the mountains and, and camping, you know, in the city, we don't get to see all the stars and the moons and everything light and bright. But when you're out in the mountains, you see a lot of stars. Those stars shine bright and brilliant. But then when dawn begins to break, as the sun begins to rise, the stars, no matter how bright, what do they do? They start to fade, right? See, John saw himself as one of those stars, shining until the Son of God was ready to dawn. And then, with grace, he stepped back because he knew his purpose. Just like the stars, John knew his brilliance was temporary and that his role was not about drawing attention to himself, but about making way for the light of Christ to shine. This humility and understanding of purpose are what set John apart, knowing well that in the grand scheme, he must increase, but I must decrease, just like the stars giving away to the sunrise. Now, as I come to a close, let's embrace the profound truth that echoes through the life of John in the essence of our faith. It's not about you. You must decrease. This isn't just a call to humility. It's an invitation to transformation, to shift the focus from our desires to God's purpose, from, from, from our glory to God's majesty. So let's consider five practical areas of our lives where we must embody this principle, making room for Jesus to increase. Number one, it's not about your control. You must decrease. In a world that values power and influence, surrender the reins of your life to Jesus. Relinquish the illusion of of control over your circumstances, trusting in God's sovereignty and his perfect plan for your life. He has a plan for your life. Let the control go. It's not about your possessions. There's not going to be a, a U-Haul attached to the back of the, the hearse when you, when you get ready to go be buried. It's not about your possession. You must decrease in an age of materialism where worth is often measured by wealth, we give respect to people that have money. Challenge yourself to live simply, generously, and with open hands, recognizing that everything you have is a gift from God, meant to be shared and used for His glory. It's not about comfort. You must decrease. Step out of your comfort zones. Yes, I'm talking to you. You know exactly who's being talked to right now. <laughs> Step out of your comfort zones that confine, confine your faith and limit your growth. Embrace the discomfort of growth, sacrifice, and change, knowing that it's often in the spaces of unease that we encounter God profoundly. Trust me, being up here is not comfortable. <laughs> I am out of my comfort zone. It's, about your, it's not about your opinions. You must decrease. In a culture dominated by loud voices and strong opinions, choose to listen more and speak less. Let your words be few 
and seasoned with grace. Reflecting the wisdom and love of Christ rather than the noise of the world. It's not about your glory. You must decrease. Redirect the desire for recognition and applause towards God. Live a life that points others to Jesus, seeking not accolades for yourself, but opportunities to glorify God in everything you do. So as we commit to decreasing in these areas, we create space for Jesus to increase within us and through us. This journey of decrease is not one of loss, but of gain. Gaining more of Christ, more of his love, more of his peace, more of his joy in our lives. May our hearts echo the sentiment of John the Baptist, finding our greatest joy not in our own accomplishments or recognition, but in the increasing presence and work of Christ in and through our lives. Let's walk this path of decrease together with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, knowing that as we decrease, he will indeed increase. Amen. Let us pray.